You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to do my best with my 9% of battery uh, to make our way uh, through a bit of an overview of, of the book, just so that we know uh, who we're talking to and what we're uh, dealing with when it comes to the Gospel of Mark. So Mark, uh, out of the four Gospels, is one of those guys that wasn't an eyewitness. You think about that. Like Matthew and John have the value of being able to rub shoulder to shoulder with Jesus in real time. So Mark is going off of the rumors. He's going off of, more than that, conversations with uh, other apostles. And so Mark is, um, he's, a, he's a nephew of Barnabas, Uncle Barney. Uh, Barnabas, the guy from, uh, from the book of Acts, if you guys know that. He's a partner of Peter. He appears in the book of Peter. Uh, he's also um, a partner with Paul and actually caused some of the division there between Barnabas and Paul. We're not quite sure. His full name is, is John Mark, which is a great name for a preacher as well as a Southern uh, rock worship leader too. Uh, but that's, that's John Mark. Fun fact um, about John Mark is uh, he had a wealthy mom named Mary, and we do know that it was their house that uh, the disciples were praying when Peter got released from prison to come knock on the door that was the house that they were living in. Uh, don't ever underestimate the power of just inviting people over. Uh, and number two, uh, it is rumored and potential, potential that uh, the house of John Mark was also the location in the setting of the Last Supper, which is a pretty uh, cool thing to say, well, my house, your house, what you guys had a birthday party? We had the Last Supper at, at, at my house. And uh, it's a real shame because um, up until really about the sixth century, which is like a super long time ago, but for a long period of time, uh, the book of Mark was largely overshadowed and ignored uh, compared to the other Gospels. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. It's 16 chapters long. We're not so sure about some of the beginning uh, of the chapter um, of chapter 1 or the end of uh, chapter 16. There's some italicies in the end of your Bible because we're not quite sure about some of that, so that creates a little confusion and uncertainty. 90% of the book of Mark is actually located in Matthew and John, so why am I reading the shorter book when I can get all of the shorter book and the additions in, of, the, of the longer book? Why would I be spending time studying the book of Mark. And also, the book of Mark is very abrupt, very quick. It almost makes you feel anxious because there's so many loose ends as you go along the way. A lot of problematic passages that make scholars just say, why don't I just read, why would I read the confusing version of this gospel when I could read the clear one? Anybody with me, right? But the reason why there was not as much scholarship in the earlier days is because we didn't understand how to use it. We didn't understand the purpose and the intent of the book of Mark. And, and I would say that's because the purpose and the intent of the book of Mark is not so much to explain, uh, but to help us encounter the person and work of Jesus. So for example, you know, you have two different uh, Friday nights, and the first night, I take you to the party and I introduce you to somebody. This is so-and-so. This is the job that they work. This is their background. This is the hard things that they've gone through life, and this is how, you know, you can help to empathize with them and connect with them. If, if I bring you to the party and introduce you to somebody, you have a set experience and interpretation with not only the person you're being introduced to, but the introducer, Right? But if another Friday night comes up and you are not brought to the party, you're just introduced to the party, you just stumble into the party, you wander in and you just meet a random stranger. You have no context for them, you have no narration, you have no, 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 no frame of reference. You are having a completely different experience. In the first experience, uh, you're being introduced to somebody. In the second experience, you're just meeting them and having to make up your own mind. And that, I would say, is the mechanism for what Mark is. It's a series of of very sometimes abrupt stories that actually is made to make you feel a little bit anxious because meeting the rabbi uh, of Jesus and, and the, 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 the savior from Nazareth uh, would be a, a pretty startling and shocking experience if you had nobody there to help you interpret it. 
This is what it would be really like, I think, to meet Jesus of Nazareth without having the, the Morgan Freeman narration around it explaining what's happening. And so Mark is more of a show than a tell. Mark is more of an experience than an explanation. It is, is encountering and confronting and coming to terms with the rabbi of, of, of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, who died and rose again, and having to make up your mind. If you take out the last italicized parts of this book and you just put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples, the last people in that book are these women who come to the empty tomb and they don't have a Sunday in praise and put on Easter lilies. They run for their life because it's terrifying to think about a resurrected Jesus. And so it is that we're taken along in empathy with these disciples to, to, to explore what would it be like to meet him face to face, to know Jesus. And so his, his style actually fits the agenda that he has as a gospel writer. Um, if you look at the, the, the four gospels on the screen there, that, um, that the agenda of Matthew is to teach that Jesus is the coming king, that he is the king of not only of, 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 of Israel, but he's also the king of the world. And unlike a lot of our presidents that are just clamoring pans and getting you to believe what they want, Jesus, what is the picture of a Messiah king? It's Jesus on the mountain sitting down and teaching disciples. It's teaching, not corralling. It is, it is inviting to the kingdom of God. And then there's five portions of miracles with five teachings that all narrate and explain what's going on. That is not the task of, of, of Mark. Neither is the task of Mark to show about the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus, it says in the book of Luke, you know, people often say, scholars will say that in the book of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal, because there's nothing more human than breaking bread. So that's what the book of Mark, uh, of Luke rather, is doing is remember he is fully God, but he's also fully, fully flesh and blood. He's fully man. And then the book of John opens up with that, right, that homily of Genesis and, and the word becoming flesh and the seven I am statements that, that, that tell you that this dude is not just, is not from here. He's not from Nazareth, really. He's, he's from the seven-day creation scheme and ultimately, you know, the resurrection of Lazarus marks off the signature miracle um, um, ministry of Jesus to show that he is not just a king, not just a man, but he's God. And, and then we have Mark, that, that Mark comes to write to us that Jesus, Jesus is not just um, a, a revolutionary miracle worker. He's not, he is these things. He is God. He is king. He's not just a, a wise teacher, but he came to die as a suffering servant. That everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And the kingdom has a cost. That we are here, not by accident and not by free, but by a deep, uh, by, a, by, a, by a price, uh, by, by, by a worthy and precious cost. The precious blood of Jesus is the reason why we have our space and our place in this room. And we never forget that in terms of understanding the definition of what the Messiah is. So huperetes is a Greek word that Luke uses to describe, or actually, yeah, Luke uses to describe John Mark in the book of Acts. It means servant. Or it's one of the Greek words that you could use servant. And huperetes is, is, is a picture of, um, of, a, of a Roman galley boat. It's like a boat with the, with, the, with the buff dudes. There's people on top, but there's buff dudes are rowing. There's no motor, there's no engine, there's no sail. It's just rowing. And if you were experiencing that boat, and you're on the boat and the ship is moving, on the surface, you're only seeing the fancy cocktail people drinking their drinks and hanging out on the top of the boat. You're experiencing the top of the boat of, of, of life and flourishing and, and, and abundance and, and hanging out on the top of the boat. But if you're hanging out too much on the top of the boat, you might forget what's driving the boat. You might forget the servants underneath the boat pushing the thing. You might forget what's actually the engine of what makes the kingdom of God work. You might think that the kingdom's all sunshine and raises, and you might forget there was a cost for the kingdom. 
You might forget that somebody had to die for the kingdom, not just for people to have more altruistic values or to be more poverty you know, sensitive, that somebody died a bloody death for that. And so it's like, for example, I think in history, used to be a history teacher, did you know that the you talk about what's the cause of the Civil War, you know, the antebellum season, the Dred Scott case, or, or Kansas, bleeding Kansas, or whatever. You know, the real cause of the Civil War, the real cause, the real cause of the Civil War didn't happen in 1860. The real cause of the Civil War happened in 1830 when mothers would invite their children on the lap to talk to them about the evils of slavery. That was the seeds. We mistake what power is. We mistake what changes. We mistake what actually makes things move. The kingdom of God it's not just sunshine and good speeches and sermons. It's from the power of the death and the resurrection and the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, the suffering servant. This is what he says in Mark 10, the memory verse really of all of the book of Mark that you might think about for the next couple of months is Mark 10, verse 45. This is what I want you to get out of this, Mark would say to us, from the red letter mouth of Jesus, verse 45. The son of man, he's always in the wilderness. He's always telling people to be quiet. He is not a PR spinner. He actually gives people's parables so that the people that aren't listening aren't going to hear what he has to say. The Son of Man is not a celebrity, and he's not a salesman, and he doesn't really care. You know what I mean? Like, he does care. He obviously has great compassion, but he is demanding, right, that the, that the disciples are cross-carriers. And the Son of Man, make no mistake about it, even though he is under the boat, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And just in case you make this mistake, when he gets up there on the cross, he's not a trampled rose that just accidentally happened to say the wrong thing at the wrong time and got himself killed. No, no, he didn't have his life taken. He gave his life. A servant is a dangerous person because the servant is unbullied and unbribed in their mission, in their agenda. And he made a decision. It wasn't something that happened on accident to come and to serve and to die and to be, and to be nameless and faceless and voiceless for many people that wouldn't even know who he is. He came to die for all, one sacrifice, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is there any better years spent or energy spent or stress spent that somebody would get on your 40-year-old birthday and say, thank you for reaching me for Jesus. Thank you for paying the, the price when nobody else saw it. Is there anything more important to think about when you're tempted to give up or give in or, or, be, or shaky or whatever? Thank you. Is there any price that's worth, worth giving your life for than the prize of people, than the bride of Christ fully unblemished and purified and brought near, the nations brought near to Jesus? This is why he came to die, not so he could show these a Navy SEAL. It's because he came as a ransom, because he wanted his people. And so really, this book is really an invitation, right? Because if the servant's not greater than the master, and the master is a servant, what does that make us? If the servant is not greater than the master, and our rabbi is a suffering servant, then what are disciples other than cross carriers? There is no such thing as a crossless disciple. There's no such thing as a kingdom that's just, oh, we're going to turn it upside down and be more humble and be nice and smile and love your neighbor. This thing has a cost to it. And he tells you from the beginning when he says, drop the net, hey man, like this doesn't come from great politics and nice people. This comes from cross carriers. It's going to cost something. I want you to count the cost. No kingdom, or no, no cross, no kingdom. The kingdom cost is the cross, is the theme, I think, of, of, all of all of the book of Mark. If there's no cross, there's no kingdom. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Everybody has an idea about what we should do with racial injustice. Everybody has an idea about what we should do in poverty. Nobody wants to die for it. Nobody wants to die for the, for, for the gospel. That's not what the flesh wants. We're not going to get the kingdom through practicing better justice. We're not going to get the kingdom through practicing better experiences of love. 
We're not going to get the kingdom through reading good books and finding the right secrets. We come to the kingdom at the edge of faith, at the lack of control, where I say, I actually believe you when you say I'm going to find my life in you. I'm actually going to believe you when I say, if I lose my life in you, I'm actually going to find it. And so let's, um, let's get into to Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and see how far uh, we can get this morning. The beginning, the beginning of the good news, the evangelion, the gospel of the Jesus of Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. In the beginning, the good news, you guys know that the good news is not good advice. There's a fifth gospel that somebody, you know, by Thomas, that they were trying to say maybe we would have had a canon with five gospels. But the gospel of Thomas was very different than the other four because the gospel of Thomas was this removed, uh, esoteric, uh, pithy little sayings of how to get your life right. But that's what none of the other four gospels are about. The, the four gospels are not good advice, they're good news. And they, most, most, most directly, what the good news is, is that, is that God is king. And it's, and it's good news is, is, is news that is true no matter you like it or don't like it. It's not up to you whether it happened or not. It happened. And it's up to you to decide how you respond to that news. But that is the gospel. The gospel is not a good formula to get you into heaven. The gospel is a person. The gospel is that God, as people were trying to climb their ladders and get to him, came down to earth, removed his God car, or he took off, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, uh, the you know, took off that, the, the, high, the high places of, of, his, of what he deserved to come down to serve humanity, that he lived a life, and his teachings and his miracles were not actually just examples that we're just supposed to go and get it and follow. They're actually a life lived to show us that we don't live that life. They're teachings in life to, to show a ju- juxtaposition that, that in, the, in the presence of light, the dark gets pretty dark. And his life is important is that his death was a substitute for us, that his empty tomb is a resurrection of a new creation that's coming and that, that, he is, that he is not nowhere, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and right now that everything is happening underneath the domain and the authority of God. And not only that, that he's coming back, that there is a decision to made, be made for disciples. And so that is the good news of Jesus. And so he, he says this by bringing this up and there's, notice this, there's no, um, there's no um, uh, genealogy like it is in Matthew. There's no... Um, uh, Elizabeth and, and, and the beginning of John the Baptist, like it just kind of goes right into the prophecy to show that what's about to happen in the book of Mark is not an accident, that it was always planned. It was plan A, not plan B. So this is the prophecy of Isaiah and really um, other prophecies that are mingled into it. But the prophecy from Isaiah, he reads, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Like one of the big reasons why we have so much prophecy in the book is because if the things of God happened to us without knowing that they were going to happen ahead of time, we probably wouldn't think that they were God. Like the promises of God in the prophets show us that what's happening is not an accident. Otherwise, this would be a strange anointing. That's exactly what's happening, by the way. It's a coronation ceremony. There's a saying in England that wherever the queen goes, there's always the smell of fresh paint because you just don't invite royalty without having some type of a preparation. But his preparation is not fresh paint. His preparation is a dude eating locusts out out in the wilderness screaming, prepare the way of the Lord. And so this is strange anointing for sure. And verse 4 says, And John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Before this prophecy, 
before this prophet comes out into the wilderness in the Judean countryside, there was 400 years of silence. It was like that time, you know, when you did something for the last time and your parent, instead of yelling at you, just got real quiet <laughs> and you knew that you were in a lot of trouble. The laws were like the rule books. It was like the speed limit on the side of a road. And the prophets were like the police. They were lawyers and watchdogs and calling people back to the, to the laws that were broken. There's only so many times that the laws are written from one command to 613 commands. And only prophets can just empty their ink on pages and pages and pages to show that on our own, we are not trusting and following Jesus. Something is deeply wrong and broken in the people of Israel. And so this 400 years of silence, the parent comes out of the room. But instead of judgment, the call is for forgiveness. Here's the issue, though, if you're a, if you're a Torah-reading Jew, is that if anybody comes to repentance and the confession of sins actually finds forgiveness instead of judgment, there has to be an offering. Nobody goes to go see a priest and seeks forgiveness without there being an offering. And so when John says, come and be baptized in water, but doesn't say an offering, we have to be asking ourselves some questions like, where is the offering? We'll get to that question in a second, but um, I don't know if anybody of you guys are here are anti-outdoor people. My wife already uh, booked us for... Um, camping site, Camp T29 in Lake Jocassi. And so uh, I'm going to be out there roughing it again at 40 instead of 39, trying to see if at 40 instead of 39, I can actually sleep without an air mattress, you know, on the ground. There's no, you know how sometimes when you're having fun and hanging out with the right people, time speeds up? There's no slower of an hour than an hour camping. You know what I'm saying? How is, how is it that, uh, that you can take a whole bundle worth of stuff that you get at Aldi in your garage and borrowing from you know, other friends and take it all down there and then you leave it. And how is it that it, for, for months on end that everything that you put in your SUV, including you, still smells like smoke? It's unbelievable. I took the youth group one time uh, to camping. It bonds you. It's good. It's good for building the old community. A little 13-year-old kid. It was just the most profound thing to me. He said to me, he said, Oliver, how is it that my potato is both burnt and raw at the same time? <laughs> and I said, I feel like there's not a greater image for what it is that I think of when I think of camping. The Lord's working on my over-commercialized, you know, American heart, and he is helping me understand and appreciate the outdoors. I'm not particularly like a lumberjack, okay? As, I mean, I know you were probably thinking that. Uh, but I do enjoy a nice walk with the Lord in the mornings with my coffee. I walk outside. I don't wear my shoes because it grounds you, and it gives you the circulation that you need. And I just walk into the day. I'm not going to get drugged into this day. The Lord has my back. He is my right hand and my shield, you know? And I walk out there, and, and, and there is something about being outside that gets you ready for God. When you get out of these little rooms and these lights and all this tech, we're so enamored by our phones and all the wonderful things that humans could do. Look at this. We're so special. And you go out and go see a tornado and a lightning bolt. And, and the ratios and proportions, like humans do cool things. God is God. God is God. And nature will put you on your back till you're looking at the stars and get you ready for what God wants to do. Because sometimes God could be in the room, and you're just not ready for it. And God will use nature in all sorts of circumstances to get you ready for that. And so one thing I just want to say, just briefly, before we continue on, is the wilderness wasn't an accident. It was the design. He said he's going to enter in, in the wilderness, not the city. And so Jesus, this is what I would say, I think that the voice that is crying out to the wilderness, but also to you and me today, is don't waste the wilderness. People don't meet God without crisis. We're just too stubborn for that. People don't, don't meet God without loneliness because we're too codependent for that. 
the wilderness, you know, the place that Adam was sent, the place that Cain was sent, the place that we all live and that the Israelites had to walk through, like it wasn't his heart, right? But it was his plan. He didn't, he didn't choose that for Adam, but he also didn't change it. And he uses wilderness seasons because if it's not for the wilderness season, we won't be ready for God. He is taking you right now to a place where all of the things that your adults and grown-ups and teachers taught you, they're not working anymore. All of the tips, all the Instagram explore pages of all the things that are promising you that you're going to get better because of the advice, none of that's working. Have you noticed? And you're thinking, oh, something must be wrong. I must, something must be wrong. No, you're exactly where you need to be because humans don't find God in their buildings. They find him in the wilderness. If you're following the way of Jesus and, and, and you notice the busier Jesus got, the more he goes back to the wilderness. Jesus didn't visit, visit the wilderness. He lived there. He lived in the place where he was broken and stricken, in the place that he was needing of God because man doesn't meet God in, in his abundance. He meets him in his need. And the wilderness is the Christmas Eve of the gospel. That is exactly, you are closer to God than ever before when things aren't making sense, when you're confused, when things are not working. Don't waste the wilderness, I feel, is the message probably that John the Baptist would tell us. But where's the sacrifice? All we have is this water and this dude with a Fred Flintstone outfit on. How are we supposed to get forgiven without the temple and without the sacrifice? Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. At the time of the exhaustion of all the laws and all the people reminding you and browbeating you and, and carrot and sticking you to try and get you to follow the law, at the exhaustion of that place in the wilderness, Jesus shows up. Now the, the, this, the teacher appears when the student is ready. The teacher appears when the student is ready, and, and, and the follower of Jesus is, is, is ready when they're in the wilderness. It's not until that time that Jesus comes to Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water. And we should ask ourselves at this point, this is a short book and there's longer explanations for this, but why does Jesus need to get baptized? If baptism is a ritual of cleansing and repentance, then what is Jesus doing in the baptismal? He's the last person in the world that needs to be there. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he sees heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You know, there's no telescope in here. There's no telescope where you had to like look through, where Mark had to go look through and see heaven off beyond the stratosphere. Strongest telescope. So where is heaven? Exactly. Where is it located? Well, it seems that it'd be just in plain sight that when Jesus enters into obedience, the heavens are rent torn open, the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And verse 11 says, the voice of heaven comes. You are my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. I love that Trinitarian picture there. Yeah, some people say there's a modalism. That's a, it's a heresy that, you know, God the Father was the one who was doing all the work before the Gospels, and Jesus is the one who's on the clock here. And then it comes the Spirit today. And that's not true. The Father's always with the Son, and the Son's always with the Spirit, and the Spirit and the three are all in one. It's not an ice cube and a vapor. It's one God. It's one God. And so what did you get here? Jesus comes down into the water. You got a family photo, didn't you? You know, little Timmy and little Johnny and Penny the dog, right? But way cooler than that, you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit all in one place at one time, creating an image that's going to drive us through the rest of this narrative. Father, Son, and Spirit. And then it says, at once, the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. That's a cool word right there. Did you know that the same word that is used for Adam when he went out to the wilderness, that he was driven out to the wilderness. The same word that Cain, when he saw the repercussions of killing his brother Abel, when he was, he was going out to the wilderness, he wasn't just kind of stumbling off. 
he was, he was driven out to the wilderness. Like he was compelled and driven out to the wilderness. That same word, driven, is used by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was driven into the wilderness to meet with us. And verse 13 says, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Jesus didn't visit the wilderness, he lived there. And in many ways, everything we're gonna read is just different variations of Jesus doing what he did in our wilderness for us. So why the baptism? Is it a big humble party? No, you're the greatest. No, Jesus, you're the greatest. No, dude, you're the greatest. I'm gonna show you how humble I'm just gonna get into this baptism. Certainly shows the character of God that he's even, you know, the, the, the greatest among us is the least and he's gonna get baptized. It's a very humble servanthood thing to do, but I think there's more than it's getting going on here. When I was uh, turning 30, I, I had this kidney issue uh, to where um, the doctors were kind of pre-diagnosing me with this nephritis thing, which could have been real trouble. Every 10 years, you have to get a dialysis and, or you have to get a kidney transplant and you have to go on to dialysis. And I was just young and had to give up dairy. So that was really awful too. Had to be vegan like y'all for a minute. And I did not make it. Camping and dairy. Okay. Those are my two things and many others too. And I picked up my phone and my dad, I mean, it just made me laugh. It just made me laugh, but it was comforting as well. I was like, dad, it's not good for me. This is not good. I got these kids. I'm going to be having kidney problems. Fast forward. I, I, I believe the Lord healed me. But in that moment, I didn't know the answer. And so I called my dad up and he goes, oh, don't worry, I have two. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. So imagine you, you go into the Greenville Memorial Hospital today and you have a heart problem and you need to get a heart transplant. And you come into the hospital and just by way of happenstance and serendipity, you walk next to the person and somehow the lady comes in with your chart and tells you that the person that you just walked into the hospital with is your donor. What would you say and think and feel if you walked in to get a heart transplant and you walked in at the same time as your donor? Jesus entered the same waters of baptism as you and I, but not for the same reason. You and I, that's an outward sign of an inward transition. We were going into the waters of baptism, if there's just a picture up there, Maurice, of Naomi getting to the waters of baptism. And it just looks like pancakes and it looks like dresses and hanging out and a big celebration. It's a, it's a great party. It's coming into the waters of baptism. And not just to trade out your sins, but to join a life, to get a family and a mission and a calling and a purpose and do spiritual warfare for the rest of your life. That's exactly what's happening in that baptism. But what we can't see to the naked eye is that Naomi's not just in the baptismal and me in the baptismal, Jesus is in that baptismal. And here's the thing about Jesus is Jesus did not go into that baptism for the same reason as we did. We got in there to get a life. He got in there to give a life. But the picture of baptism is him saying that I did not have my life taken from me. I walked into this by myself. And from here on out, I've been driven and compelled by the Spirit. I cannot go back. It's the same word that uses for Paul in his missionary journeys. I am compelled by love. And so that's the difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam was driven to the wilderness through sin. And Jesus was driven to the wilderness through the Spirit. And he is a willing, suffering servant, unless we ever forget that, that he chose to be a servant because it's a mighty weapon in the hand of the Lord. And there's a way that humans are with the way that they serve and the way they love. I used to know a pastor, and he would share his testimony vulnerably that his wife told him one time a very convicting statement, when you touch me sometimes, it feels like taking. I don't know if you've ever been served by someone, and it doesn't feel like the serving is coming from giving. It comes from taking. And that is the nature of an empty person, is that if you don't have anything to give, you have nothing to give away. And that there's strings and agenda and politics to our giving. Sometimes we're giving because we feel so guilty. We want to we atone for our own guilt. And so the giving isn't really the agenda of love. It's the agenda of taking. 
Sometimes we're giving because we want to be known for something. Sometimes we're giving because we want to be militant and show why we're righteous and the other one's not. But Jesus never gave to get a notch in his belt. Jesus gave because the prize of the people that he wanted to draw to himself. Even more than that, he gave because the love of the Father and the obedience of the Son and the filling of the Spirit. Jesus was never motivated by strings. This picture that you just saw is important to remember, maybe of all the pictures we're going to read in the book of Mark, because this is the picture that makes Jesus who he is. Jesus is not a social justice campaign to prove that he's right. He's not a politician. Matter of fact, he's not even here to like help be a humanist. He's here because he has the love of the Father, the obedience of the Son, and the filling of the Spirit every day of his life because he didn't visit the wilderness. He lived there. And that was the, the, the identity of all the days that he spent here on this earth. And so it all comes down to a close. And this, this section is going to tell us as we go through the rest of this book of, of who Jesus is, but also who we are. And that's very important because when you go to the party, you're meeting somebody. But it's not just to know something, it's to respond to someone. It's meeting them and making up your mind by yourself about what you're going to do about it. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, that God has come to lower himself as a man, to live a life that we couldn't live, to die the death we couldn't die, to live out the Holy Spirit, empty tomb life for all of our days, starting now. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus didn't have a sermon series. He had one sermon, and that's it. The kingdom of God, which came at a cost, a bloody cost, the kingdom of God has come to be given to you because you can't take it on your own. The kingdom of God has come near to you on its own, and it's your, your chance to respond and to believe. And so the character is identified and the audience is there identified in verse 16. This is us. Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting his net into the lake. They were fishermen, come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him, and when he had gone a little further, he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay. He called them, and, and they left their, their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him too. You see, uh, Mark is not just writing this passage for us to meet Jesus, right, but to be made a disciple of Jesus. If a servant can't be greater than the master, and the master is a suffering servant, what does that make us? There is no such thing as a crossless discipleship. Discipleship is not pithy sayings and fortune cookies and a way to get your life right. Discipleship is come and die or it's nothing. There is a cost to following Jesus, and the kingdom doesn't come through goodwill. It comes through the cross. It comes through a bloody, dead, 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 deadly cross. And for us, he's dying the death we don't, we don't have to die, but we give ourselves as a living offering. Our life is the cross. And so here it is, these two, these two things. He, what is Jesus saying and what Mark is saying to us as we embark on kind of this, this process of following Jesus for the rest of our life is to make sure to count that cost. There is, no, there is no discipleship. If you think, oh, well, Jesus would never make me risk something where I didn't you know, know the cost of it and it would be scary for me. No, I think it's pretty scary to get called off that beach. He would never make life hard for me or he would never cause me to suffer. He would never... No, there, there's a whole arsenal of things that God will use. He is good in those things, okay? but, it's, but it's not costless. There is, there is pain. There is heartache. There is a, and count the cost so you don't get surprised when it happens. But here's the other side of this equation you can't forget is you can't, you can't not count the cost of discipleship, but you can't fail to count the cost of non-discipleship. You can't come to Jesus and, and just think, oh, this is the things I have to give up without understanding what he's come to give you. And, and, and the cross-bearing discipleship that we all do and we all follow, we realize this is not us being martyrs. This is us being lottery winners. This is us finding that following Jesus is not about pain. It is about joy. We are not Buddhists. We're, we're, we're hedonists. We love the joy. of We love our cross. 
Sometimes I think we, we think of Christianity as almost this Buddhist thing that we, we do to separate ourselves from the pain and pretend like things don't hurt. Oh, they absolutely hurt. But the prize is better. The ransom is better. Getting your 40-year-old video back and somebody saying, thank you for reaching me for Jesus is better. And that's the math problem. That's a simple calculation. Is that the reward is, is, is worth the cost. So I'll... Uh, um, I had my last little uh, youth group story, but I'll skip it for y'all and, and uh, just catch up on the second service, I guess, if you stay. Uh, I'll, I'll just uh, invite the band to come over for the sake of time and, and, um, and put up the intentional question. And it just says this. Um, do you see Jesus as a suffering servant? We become like the one we behold. If we have a, a vision of Jesus um, that is just a wise teacher and, and a sage, then the disciple is just a wise listener and a learner. And there isn't a cost. There's just intellect. If... if, if if Jesus is God, then, man, he's got it all under control, and I guess I just believe, and that's all that there is to be done. If Jesus is just a friend of man, then I should just love my neighbor well. But Jesus is a suffering servant. That means something for the one that follows him. Do we have a vision for the suffering servant of Jesus, the one under the oars, in the secret, in the wilderness, emerging only sometimes, but showing the very authority of God? Do we have a vision for the suffering servant? And secondly, have we counted our costs? Not only the cost of discipleship, but the cost of non-discipleship. The cost of a life of aimlessness and randomness and hedonism. Have we counted the cost of not following Jesus and then counted the blessing of being a ransom for others? Do you count your life as a ransom for others? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.